0: Many analysts have predicted that the economic troubles provoked by the COVID-19 pandemic will be brief, followed by a vigorous recovery. They reason that there will not be an economic depression or even a lasting recession because the fundamentals of the economy before the coronavirus crisis struck were strong and there are no underlying systemic problems. Peter Desane, a strategy senior principal at Accenture, expressed this perspective when he spoke with me back in the beginning of April. I'm hopeful
1: that some of the impacts to certainly larger companies, smaller companies, I think will be impacted more long term, but the larger companies, they're they're more likely to recover quickly. I would I mean my expectation currently is that the market actually will recover fairly quickly because if you look at not that long ago we had historic highs longest you know longest bull market super low unemployment some of those fundamentals are the same so I don't I don't view I mean we're definitely in a recession and there's an unbelievable number of people impacted but a lot of the impact is people who aren't able to work because their companies or their business is closed and they're not able to look for work because they can't leave their houses. So I think a lot of that will
0: turn around. In the two months since Peter and I spoke, there have been a lot of changes. There's been a lot of death and loss and anger. Just as business in the United States was beginning to open back up a bit, the killing of George Floyd by a police officer in Minnesota sparked a new round of social upheaval with a combination of peaceful protests, destruction of commercial property, and new rounds of excessive police violence. At first glance, the unrest in the United States seemed like a sudden outburst of fury, Actually, it wasn't sudden at all, but was the result of long-standing problems of racism and militarized, corrupt law enforcement. The apparently sudden upheaval was the result of a tipping point of problems that had been growing for a long time, but had been ignored. What if the coronavirus crisis itself is like that? What if the spread of the COVID-19 virus has been a catalyst that has revealed our vulnerability to other problems that we have been ignoring for too long? Welcome to Beyond Back to Normal, a podcast that shares ideas gathered through months long research into the impact of the coronavirus crisis on the culture of business. My name is Jonathan Cook. I'm the researcher who conducted the study, consisting of 50 open-ended, qualitative interviews in March and April of 2020, as the COVID-19 pandemic achieved a global scale. It's now June, and there can no longer be any denying that the coronavirus crisis has resulted in a significant economic downturn. The standard economic interpretation of these troubles is that the COVID-19 pandemic is a fluke, an unpredictable aberration. Once the world is rid of the pandemic, this school of thought advises, things can return to normal with a bit of cleanup and a fix here and there. From this perspective, the way business was done before seems to have worked well and will work well again. Many of the people I interviewed for this research don't see things that way. They see systemic problems. Among these dissenters from the conventional point of view is Ralph Talmont, a strategic consultant and organizer from Poland. Poland.
2: It is, uh, it is clear that we need to redesign our entire way of doing business, because if we don't, then the next crisis will be even more severe. And the one after that will mean the end of civilization. And you know, I'm very far from painting grim images of you know, death and destruction it's not my job, I'd have gone into the priesthood if, if, if that was, that was my, my inclination. But it's just obvious that we need to reassess what is actually really valuable and work towards achieving that as opposed to achieving endless divvies. But uh, the scale of uh, the phenomenon of you know, growth uh, at all costs over the last 30, 40 years. That's kind of where the, uh, the cracks in the structure come from. Um, and they get papered over, or have been, with you know,
0: more debt and excellent public relations. Where others see the COVID-19 crisis as an isolated and temporary problem, Ralph describes cracks in the structure of business culture that have been growing for decades. Though they have existed for some time, these cracks have been exposed this year because the facade of normality in business has been pulled away. Virginie Glanzer, founder of Acorn Oak, has another metaphor for the conventions of business that we took for granted before the coronavirus came on the scene. A house of cards.
3: To me, the virus is the last straw. It actually uh, represents a much deeper uh, challenge. It's a society challenge. It's, it's a deep anxiety. This is actually touching a number of system issue. It's, it's really, it's almost like a, um, a chateau de carte a card uh, castle that is crumbling. Whether you look at the climate change, whether you look at the huge inequality that capitalism has created that a lot of people used to believe in and agreed and accept is no longer accepted. Uh, there are some generation uh, challenge. Uh, you know, No wonder why we see the hashtag uh, boomer remover. People who have the power now are not the ones who wants to change. And people who want to change don't have the power. And I think this virus just shows, showcase the, uh, the amount of anxiety that all of us have uh, you know, accepted all those years. And a part of me wants this crisis to be, you know, as much as I hate to see people dying, and I think it's really sad and frustrating and, and scary. The society has to change, the system in place has to change. Instead of adjusting and adapting on a regular basis, it seems that humans are always waiting for crisis to be on their knees, to have to face the crisis and change. That's how the narrative is. And even in your personal life, you know, you're not going to change until you're, you're forced to change, whether it's an accident or a health issue or a divorce or the death of a loved one. And I don't understand why we don't adjust and adapt. We can see it in the marketplace. People have lost trust. I lost trust. But I think we're going to see a new type of organization. Um, because ultimately, the way we're working in right now, the way we look at work is really uh, very close to an assembly line. And this is not sustainable because fundamentally humans are not machine. They're not supposed to be tied up to any job eight hours a day. That's just not the right thing to do. And we see, you know, after 150 years, we're I think I think we're coming to an end to, you know, a point of you no know, turning it it has to change.
0: Subjective reality is one of the main themes in the interviews done for this research. Social reality is never just one thing. It changes according to our perspective and it fractures along lines of difference when pressure is applied. As Virginie says, those who seek change seem not to have the power to make change, and those who have the power to make change seem not to want to change. So it is that we have voices for business reform demanding change that have never seemed to be heard. And we have voices of business leaders who are commonly heard from reassuring us that no change is necessary. No one is neutral in this schism within business culture. Calls for calm, sober management are part of the cultural struggle over change and power, as much as reformers loudly calling for transformation. The calls to keep things as they were, to return to normal, are contributing as much to the instability of the system as the efforts of those who are working to dismantle that system. It's unsettling to talk about business leaders in this way, because the conventional narrative in business culture celebrates business leaders as if they were agents of change, moving decisively to create opportunity and disrupting the status quo. This conventional narrative, however, overlooks the ways that business leaders work to stifle change once they've gained positions of authority for themselves. In practice, business leadership is more about leveraging power to keep things as they are than it is about boldly following a vision to explore new possibilities. The resistance of business leaders against giving anything more than speeches and press releases as gestures toward change, has itself led to the instability of their structures of authority. As Ben Depke, principal at IX Company, puts it, the distribution of power in conventional business culture had already become top-heavy in the years leading up to COVID-19.
4: It was already built on shaky stilts, I mean, even before all this. Right, it was top heavy, I guess is what I'm saying. And given the steep decline, I would guess that it's not gonna be something that comes back for another year. I think it'll. there's a lot that needs to get fixed. And this is one of those sort of Kali the Destroyer moments where as you watch things crumble, you hope that we can start to see some of the golden nuggets that we can build on after the dust settles but i i do think there will be all these artificial attempts to pump up the body without a skeleton the economic body without a skeleton Um, but it's sort of gross to watch the organizations that are structuring the economy are phantoms that they are using all sorts of patchwork clustering of cover-ups and little compensating behaviors to continue to expand their reach and drive immediate revenue. And this actual, the actual work of creating substance and reflecting meaning back into the people who believe in these organizations vis-a-vis brands, they've not done that work. Uh, they've largely rejected it, and you see it in the cavalier treatment of the stories they tell and the statements they make related to vision, purpose, values, a promise. You see all this sort of how do we use the you know the buzzy language and you know check these boxes? Do we have a thing that goes with that thing? It's all it's all paper tigers and. To me, the real substance of saying, of really understanding what is our purpose on Earth and what is our niche within the ecosystem, where if we deliver it, we are not just supporting our own growth as an organization and as a brand, but we are supporting the growth of the people who believe in us. And on an even broader scale, we are supporting the growth of the global population, psychologically, spiritually and hopefully in all these other lower-down-the-pyramid ways. But I think there has been a rejection of that. And as such, I think you've got a lot of organizations with huge hollow spots. And that's when I, when I talk about <laughs> this body without a skeleton, or to quote Jimi Hendrix, not a bone in its jelly body. Th- this is what I'm talking about, is I think perhaps the upcoming or impending crash of the economy reveals that lack of substance and allows us hopefully to build back up from a place of real meaning and human value. Have you ever been anxious about something or maybe lost in your thought about something that was deeply troubling and maybe the phone rang or somebody knocked on the door and all of a sudden you shrieked or you know crapped your pants. (laughs) I think the virus is that knock on the door.
0: If the coronavirus is, as Ben says, a knock on the door, who's there? What are the underlying structural problems that have led to the social vulnerabilities that have made the COVID-19 pandemic a crisis in business culture, rather than simply a public health concern? one of the most commonly mentioned pre-existing social conditions exacerbating the crisis is economic inequality. That inequality, it turns out, was embedded within the design of my own research project. Given the legal restrictions of social distancing, the Business in the Time of Coronavirus project was conducted virtually, with interviews conducted on the Zoom platform for video conferences. The Zoom platform works well for remote interviews, with simple management of appointments and reasonable quality of audio recording. The problem is that Zoom is not available to everyone in business. It requires a strong, reliable internet connection, and despite common presumptions, not everyone in business has access to these basic requirements. Especially in the early days of the COVID-19 shutdowns, digital communications networks have often collapsed under the unexpected burden of video conferences. What's more, Zoom doesn't provide local telephone access numbers for people in many countries outside of Europe and North America. The result, I soon discovered, is that research using interviews done through Zoom is biased toward economically stable Europeans and Americans. The voices of those business people who have lost their work and those who are doing business far from the places where Zoom conferences run smoothly didn't make it into this research, just as they don't make it into many of the other discussions that contribute to business culture. The techno-anthropologist Marcus Rothmuller, was one of the many participants in this research who pointed out this gap. The people enduring the most economic suffering during this crisis have become invisible. In business culture, if you're out of work, it's as if you no longer exist. Reflecting on the, the
5: things that I've been speaking about this this conversation so far, it seems quite quite positive, I think, optimistic compared to, but this is again, it's it's because I'm in such a lucky situation. I'm also in, as I said, in the mountain area, I can go into a big garden in front of me. I mean, I'm probably not having any of the problems that so many other people face. And I think this is is clearly visible in the way I talk about the situation.
0: People who are sitting comfortably in self-quarantine with economic comfort and plenty of time on their hands, can easily talk about the crisis in abstract philosophical terms, as if the main challenge of the experience is a journey of self-discovery. It's easy to forget that if you're one of the fortunate, many people don't have that luxury. Philip Vostel of the Czech Academy of Sciences took a moment during his interview to observe that the mainstream experience during the coronavirus crisis has not been one of comfortable contemplation. On the contrary, those with enough reserves to ride out the crisis from a home office have dominated online discussions because of their ability to access online discussions. In terms of raw numbers, however, they have been the exception to the rule there is
6: a group of people who who really can enjoy paradoxically and oddly enough and it's like a, it's almost like a um, heresy to say that so it, it, they can enjoy this kind of situation but on the other hand this is definitely a marginal group within the society broadly speaking on, on the other hand there are those who are overemployed, as, as I, if I can put it like that, working, as they say, you know, 150%, you know, in healthcare and many other professions, you know, truck drivers, people who are working in the grocery stores, they have to work much more intensely than in the past. So they have no free time at all. You know, free time is a sort of a, it's a sort of a, if, I, if, you talk to, if we talk to them about free time, they will punch us probably or something, you know. But then there is also a group of people who are unemployed temporarily or, or for
0: good. And they also have a free time, but not by their own choice. Anche Fall is one of those whom Philip refers to as the overemployed. During this crisis, her work facilitating shipments of food to grocery stores in the early hotspot of northern Italy left her little time to enjoy webinars.
7: I have friends and family from all over the world reaching out, and it's too overwhelming for me. The shutdown, when people post videos of, oh, I can learn a new language, I can really fully relax. I had four days off last week, and I was troubleshooting for the office in between my two hours workout but i cannot take two minutes to to really really breathe in my work time when somebody says "Ah, oh, let's have a call at two o'clock i'm saying no um my board wants to know what we're doing next week in marketing and i have to distribute your sources for the graphics team so that they are working and I have to present that i, I don't have that right now yeah it's uh, the opposite of what other people may experience those
0: who are in relatively comfortable locations, may comment that the COVID-19 experience is something that we are all sharing. And up to a point, such observations make sense. The struggles unleashed by the rapid spread of the coronavirus have not, however, been evenly distributed. A study by the University of Southern California Dornsife Center Of economic and social research found that Americans with low income have been much more likely to have lost their jobs during the coronavirus crisis than Americans with high income. About one-third of Americans making less than $40,000 per year had become unemployed during the crisis at the time of their research compared to only one-tenth of Americans making more than $100,000 per year. Economic aid packages have provided a disproportionate advantage to business owners, who are already financially comfortable, providing less assistance to businesses that are genuinely struggling to survive. For example, large portions of the small business rescue loans funded by the U.S. Congress ended up being taken by large business chains and small business owners who had personal relationships with bank managers, while huge numbers of genuinely small businesses were denied assistance. At the same time, large banks took $10 billion in fees from the program to serve as middlemen, even though the banks took no risk in delivering the loans. These kind of inequities are nothing new, while abstract theories of capitalism often imagine a meritocratic system in which skill is what gets people ahead. Scientific research into patterns of economic success have found that dumb luck is a stronger factor than talent in financial achievement. Business leaders didn't get to be business leaders because they're better than everyone else. They got that way through luck and powerful social connections, plus some talent. Most talented people don't become rich and powerful, not because there's anything wrong with them, but because there's not much room at the top, given the accelerating concentration of wealth that has resulted from the digital economy. Research findings released by MIT economist Daron Asamuglu during the COVID-19 crisis indicate that for decades, workplace automation has increased economic inequality instead of providing a general economic benefit. The more that business has automated, the fewer professional opportunities there have been the long-promised vital economy of human work enabled by robots doing the drudgery for us simply never materialized. Instead, a very small number of people have kept the profits for themselves, neglecting to reinvest significantly in society at large. Hane Bazad, who works providing IT services in Rwanda, reminds us that the benefits and burdens of business culture have never been evenly distributed.
8: So the things that I'm hoping uh, to, that this crisis will get us all on is uh, uh, an understanding of the end of an era, which is an era that was very much led by um, a mindset or dogmas linked to neo-capitalistic mindset. Where whereby some communities um, benefited from about two centuries of, let's say, north-south exploitation and value chains that were built and, and that still benefited those same people ge- over generations. And I think we, we we will be confronted with the reality that we cannot accept anymore that very few people get by with all the richness and all the abundance and the comfort and the security and and the rest would work for them and eventually die if they don't work for them. Even in so-called developed countries, which some of them have have shown that they they very much lacked uh, the necessary and relevant leadership to take decisions. I think some businesses have proved to be irrelevant. Uh, Some high business have proved to have no uh, added value whatsoever to society, yet they were draining a lot of attention and also draining a lot of uh, money.
0: Let's be plain about this. When Hane talks about North-South exploitation, she's referring to practices like slavery and colonization. Nations with the greatest wealth and influence over the culture of business got that way through systematic violence against the rest of the world. The pattern over the centuries is too consistent for any honest person to deny. Conventional business structures are machines of inequality designed to give opportunity to a few people at the expense of many more. It's been difficult to notice during the COVID-19 crisis that even as immense numbers of people enter into outright economic ruin, the stock markets have recovered. This discrepancy is not an aberration from an overall pattern of shared economic progress. It's how business operates. The trend has been remarkably consistent. As economic inequality gets worse and worse, the thing that we call the economy does better and better. That's because what we call the economy doesn't represent the economic welfare of most people. It represents the economic welfare of people on average in a system in which welfare is distributed in a highly uneven way. When a corporation's stock value can increase Even as it fires tens of thousands of people, it should be clear to people of good conscience that stock valuation is not an ethical measurement of economic prosperity. Most people in the world don't own any stock at all, and most of the business investments in the world are owned by a tiny number of people. This isn't a theoretical problem. It's one that's impacting human lives in horribly, tangible ways and people working in business are noticing amy santi for example is a ux researcher who works for digital technology companies she's trained in the craft of observing people's experiences and the economic experiences that she's observing don't reflect kindly on business leaders
9: i think people in privilege who work in um well-paid jobs, tech sector, non-frontline work. Um, We have this like huge privilege actually of, of doing this kind of thing. We're the leisure class. So we're at peak capitalism, right? Like I don't, we, this is like as capitalist as we can possibly get basically at this point where people are less important than profits And, um, you know, most people's wages have not grown and there's this 1% and poor people are seen as uh, just like labor who can die and go away and will, you know, fill the jobs back up with new vulnerable people and that sort of thing. I'm hoping that it gets surfaced even more and people start to realize how messed up of a situation it is and has been for a really long time. Companies wanting to protect themselves and their stockholders essentially. So we're seeing like a ton of money being given to business, but you know, some poor person gets a $1,200 check and that's like really nothing ultimately. So I hope people become more aware of that and hold companies more responsible
0: Amy doesn't accuse all businesses of taking advantage of the economic chaos under the COVID-19 pandemic, profiting from the suffering of people who have been working from them. There are a few business leaders who have taken steps to sacrifice some of their individual economic worth for the sake of their companies and workers. These leaders, however, have been the exception rather than the rule.
9: The companies that take responsibility and do the right thing now and maybe change their business model in a way will be rewarded when this is all done. They're going to have more of a positive brand image out there to people. I think it was the CEO of Columbia or Patagonia. He decided to lower his salary to $10,000 right now in order to Put some of that money back into the company and the employees and that sort of thing. And that is like, that's what we need to see. Mark Zuckerberg giving a million dollars, I think it's like 0.05% of his total worth. That's bullshit. Amazon, Instacart, all these gig companies, Lyft, Uber, not taking care of employees because they're only contractors, they're not employees. And that's just a horrible business model. And in fact, if they did that, their business probably wouldn't have as much money. I I mean, they wouldn't be making as much money. But again, it's the people who own the stock and the people who own the means of production who are emphasized and prioritized in this way. We're going to see a lot of layoffs and jobs go away as we already have. And then when it's done, the hiring process will be slower. I think there will be fewer job openings. So there will be a more flooded job market, which I think is going to depress wages a little bit, which is really unfortunate, and again, prioritizing stock and um, executive pay, that sort of thing.
0: The unfortunate depression of wages during the coronavirus pandemic is especially tragic given the history of wage suppression in the years leading up to the coronavirus pandemic. It's commonly been noted that during the 12 years since the 2008 financial crisis, the U.S. economy enjoyed the longest period of growth in the nation's history. What has been less commonly observed, however, is that only a few people benefited from that growth. While the minority of people who gain significant income from business investments have done very well for themselves since the downturn of 2008, the vast majority of people whose income depends upon their work have seen their economic condition either stagnate or worsen. For the majority of people, there never was an economic recovery from the 2008 crisis. Only in the last few months before the COVID-19 pandemic did the long-lasting economic recession among working people finally begin to fade. Now, less than a year later, hard times are back. With a vengeance, when economists tell us that the fundamentals of the economy were strong before the COVID-19 pandemic, they're using a definition of the economy that discounts the experiences of the majority of people. They're equating stock value with economic health, even though the majority of people are not invested in stocks, and the majority of businesses Are not publicly traded. Mary Rose Romain Mou has made a career working for a different kind of economic development, helping people to build economic value through a program called Economic Stimulus Projects for Work and Action in Haiti. She's observing economic vulnerability, not just in Haiti but also in relatively wealthy countries, such as the United States, where she lives. She's calling the coronavirus crisis to be taken as an opportunity for structural economic change.
10: I just worry about everything that's going on. I see the need for structural change and um... I don't think it's necessarily going to come with the current leadership. And it's something that's going to have to be pushed and stressed because this is a time where we're seeing the need for a change. And not just any change, (laughs) not just superficial change. You know, I think I'm not alone. I've been checking in with people and I think some people that are involved in the social sector, community development, and all of, you know, the idea of public good are concerns because right now, I I mean, in the United States and everywhere, what you have is that we're really seeing the vulnerability of us people. We're seeing the weaknesses of our system. And, you know, we have a situation where, what are we talking about? We're talking about no access to healthcare when we have a, a pandemic you have a system where there isn't enough of a social net. The inequality again is showing where are the wealthy? What are they doing to address this? And obviously there is a push for us to reopen the economy. We open the economy for what? And manage this crisis because we're supposed to sacrifice everything for the economy. We are seeing the system and our current system in all of their ugliness. And we don't have the proper leadership, not just in this country, but a wonder world in terms of what it takes to make the changes that we need to have to have something that's more focused on human beings, as opposed to, have, to having a culture of extraction and exploitation. I, I don't know if you want to call it karma, destiny, or whatever. I mean, in so many ways, we knew it was coming between climate change and the fact that we were going to get a lot more, you know, issues and epidemics. We knew that. We didn't realize that it was going to slam us that fast and it was going to impact us globally. We're dealing with something that is very much unknown. There's this feeling of insecurity and we're unprepared. What do we do? I think that as a society, we take a lot for granted. And to be honest with you, I think that Somehow we've gone off of tangent and we've forgotten the true purpose of our society and of our system, which is to serve, to be for the common good. What is the common good? It's supposed to serve the majority of people. It's supposed to help us as a society, as a people, as a network of communities this is something that we have completely forgotten. When we look at the world as it is today, we look at the fact that inequality is at an all time high. We look at the fact that all of a sudden when faced with a crisis, we are being told that we have to sacrifice everything for the economy or at least you know, in, in some, you know, in some cultures in the context of the United States and this is ridiculous as a society we've gone to a point where we not only have sort of discounted the majority of life, the majority, I mean the, the average people and the common people, not only that but we've, we've, we've gotten to a point where when it comes for example to the poor or the people who are struggling we've literally objectified them as studies show that we don't even see them as people I think that it's an opportunity, especially as we have time, you know, to channel the energy of, of our anxiety and of our need for change to come together and have some discussions about what can be done. Now is the time to be bolder.
0: Mary Rose urges us to be bolder, to consider finally the economic interests of the majority of people rather than just the interests of a few the coronavirus crisis is an opportunity she says to change the culture of business so that it no longer defines business success according to the profits of elite shareholders but according to the common good marcus leto of joint idea in istanbul provides another objective from outside the mainstream. He observes that the coronavirus is far from the first society-shattering crisis to come along. It's just the first one to become global so quickly, and the first one to humble the United States and Europe in ways that the rest of the world is already quite familiar with.
5: You know, Obviously, we're going through major changes and massive... Uh... Pressures and a lot of uncertainty, and you know, we all know what that is, of course. But you know, that's really, in many ways, been our life, you know, especially here in Turkey for the past uh, at least seven years, and possibly, you know, you could even call that life, I suppose, in general. But the idea of living with, uh, especially, an external environment that is up in flames. You know, we've lived through a lot. You know, from you know, government coup or coups. You know, the fall of the government of the system of Uh, you know, most of the kind of pillars of life, you know, have been shaky for for some time. Mm. And, you know, how to, you know, hold everything together, you know, with those kind of uh, ongoing, uh, I don't know, attacks to the system, so to speak, or, you know, these these kind of ongoing questioning is is not new, let's put it this way. So, I mean, this is at a scale, which is obviously, you know, not uh, limited to one country or to one environment or to our own life you know in that kind of context and it's something that's impacted everything you know we all look at the world from our own perspective and you know even if we go back to you know rewind a few months long before all this happened there were a lot of problems in the world and there were a lot of people that were already living through uh, this type of mania mm-hmm. and um, we just didn't think much about that because we couldn't empathize or we couldn't really extend our compassion because we had never gone through such suffering ourselves
0: Marcus's partner in enterprise is Edda Czarnlaka. Working with Marcus in Turkey, she has observed years of unrest, economic insecurity, and threats from an authoritarian government. Ada compares her COVID-19 struggles to those of the Syrian refugees on the border of her country, and she finds inspiration for a broader vision of business success one that builds a prosperity for all.
7: We are lucky ones. We are in our homes. We have a house. We have somehow food. We know that somehow through this, we will come out safely. There are many other people like in Turkey, the Syrian refugees who came in, they're at the borders and they're waiting. You know, I mean, right now we're all confined in our countries. If we want to leave, there is no plane. I think the first time we step on a plane after this, we're all going to be very happy, you know. Oh, I'm flying again. So, and us, all, especially people like us who have been flying all over the world and consulting and being a part of communities, it's so interesting to be in one place at right now. It's a wonderful process. I see Corona in that sense for the ones again who are privileged to be in their homes safely. For the others who are serving us, that's a different scenario. It's it's a and yeah, much respect to those people, by choice or not, but still they're serving. And the ones on the street, I think we all, as a humanity, think need to think about them. How can we shape it in a way that there are no people on the street in a scenario like this, trying to find food and some way of living.
0: The challenges of life under coronavirus have awakened in Ada, in Marcus, and many others in business. A compassionate awareness of the difficulties that others were enduring before the arrival of COVID 19. Among them is Anthony Howard of the Socratic Leadership Academy, who reflects upon the journeys of those who must focus on basic survival rather than the kind of self improvement he brings to his clients.
11: Those who, for whatever reason, don't even have access to that, you know, don't have the privilege of. Um, you know that kind of travel intellectual travel let's call it in simple terms or imaginative travel um, I like that term um, in a sense I suspect they weren't traveling before either you know and so the coronavirus and has probably exacerbated that situation um, so they may not have been traveling because of health health frames sake. you know there could be many reasons why and of course there could be many reasons socioeconomic or many reasons why they're they're further restricted and further limited in this current current environment, which of course is tragic. You know, absent the coronavirus, well, were we hearing their voices anyway? Um, absent the coronavirus, were those people? You know, are we in some very very small way experiencing the isolation that they experience as a permanent state or almost permanent state? Does this give us give us a um, opportunity to grow in compassion and understanding of those of the voiceless, um, of those who struggle to, not just struggle to be heard, but struggle to hear, you know, that don't have access to, you know, I have no doubt at all that I have a very, very privileged life. Even in isolation, I have a privileged life. Um, and, you know, I, I have no doubt there are people who are, you know, finding this very, very, very difficult. And I know that if I was say hey, read a book, <laughs> It would, it would not be a helpful <laughs> kind of suggestion to them um, because people, some people are doing it very, very tough.
0: A discussion of the needs of economically marginalized people may seem out of place in a study of the impact of the coronavirus on business culture. However, there's something about the experience of dealing with the upheavals of life under COVID-19 that is provoking people in business to consider the perspectives of people with less economic power. This consideration is an inversion of the ordinary priorities of business culture, which typically elevates the opinions and ideas of wealthy business leaders. As business culture insiders, it's easy for us to take for granted that top executives of large companies deserve to be listened to more and compensated more richly than other people in business. This preferential treatment of the C-suite, however, is a cultural choice, not a consequence of any kind of natural economic principles. We have the choice to consider the voices of other people in business. Though she usually works with digital companies To help them evaluate the processes of their virtual environments, Amy Santi has taken the time during the coronavirus shutdowns to observe the experience of brick and mortar small businesses in her physical community.
9: One other thought small businesses. The other day I was walking around in my neighborhood and I got so upset because I just see all these companies, these small businesses. Um, brick and mortar restaurants and shops. um, Here in Portland, that's like a huge thing all over the place and they're closed and they're trying their best to get creative and still sell things and make money and stay afloat. And there's going to be a lot of casualties in that regard as well, which is really, really sad. I drove by the other day and the entire building of shops is boarded up with plywood. And it's, yeah, I know, it's really horrible and sad to see, but that's starting to happen.
0: Amy's shift of awareness from virtual to physical businesses suggests the possibility of a larger broadening of perspective, leading us to recognize the value of people at all levels of business, including, for example, grocery store clerks, workers whose status has shifted from invisible to heroic.
9: Maybe we will be able to redefine what we think a hero is. Like a teacher could be a hero. Well, I don't know. Maybe. That's not the best example. A healthcare worker can be a hero. A trash garbage person picking up garbage can be a hero. A grocery store worker can be a hero. And a lot of those people are lower income. So, um, lower-income people seen as heroes, uh, more diversity in who we're seeing as a hero.
0: When Amy identifies grocery store workers as heroes, she inverts the hierarchy of social status that's taken for granted in conventional business culture. What is it that makes the CEO of a grocery store chain a business person but a clerk working with that same company denigrated as a mere employee outside of the culture of business. While their CEOs remain safely hidden away during the coronavirus crisis, it's the people working to stock the shelves and operate the cash registers in grocery stores around the world who are taking on significant personal risk of infection, to represent their companies and keep their communities fed. Mary Rose Romaine Mu has taken notice of grocery store workers as well.
10: This person in the store that used to stop that I never even acknowledge or smile to is actually putting himself or herself on the line. And it's necessary because this person is helping to feed my family. People that we've ignored and we've discounted or we've not even acknowledged as human beings or counting in our society are now essential.
0: Alastair Somerville, who specializes in designing systems for navigating through experiences in unconventional ways, has also taken note of the temporary inversion of social roles with the recognition of the vital role in business, of people who have previously been dismissed as having low value. Who is valuable
12: in society has also gone very radically, been turned around. So sort of UK, we were looking at a very much an immigration system based upon the only people who would be able to immigrate were high value in terms of high skill um, or high income were the, the justifications. And then but yet it, it's been demonstrated in the last week or so alone that those people doing very, very basic tasks in terms of care or delivery are actually hugely valuable to society and the society needs them. So those, you know, the Conservatives are already having to reassess their idea of what is the meaning of value away from what they've been saying for the last 10 years because they've realized that they only valued a very specific class of person and that their society and that, you know, society can't cope without
0: them. The disorienting suspension of normal business practices has led many people in business to contemplate a radical reorganization of businesses. They're challenging the traditional systems of inequality that have been accepted without question in business culture for generations. What's more, they're suggesting that the conventional structures of inequality in business have significantly contributed to the global economic troubles that have accompanied the spread of the coronavirus. Next week, this podcast will listen to what research participants have to say about another pre-existing vulnerability, climate change, and what it has to teach us about alternative ecological models of business management. Thank you for listening to Beyond Back to Normal. As time moves on, you'll be able to find a transcript of this episode on the websites beyondbacktonormal.com and businessinthetimeofcoronavirus.com. The music that opens and closes each episode is a song from the instrumental duo Charles Atlas in their 2010 album To the Dust, from man you came and to man you shall return. It's a song called Corona Norco. Chin up, stay well.